Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Read Like a Writer is the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate. Three independent publishers bringing the voices and the book recommendations of their authors to your ears. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding. And in each episode, we'll hear about the books closest to these authors' hearts, their latest projects, and learn a bit about their local indie bookstore too. Hello and welcome to series two of Read Like a Writer. This is episode three. And from her home to mine, in line with current restrictions still, we have Catriona Ward, author of horror novels and creator of the best fictional twist you will read in a very long time. Catriona is the author of three books, Raw Blood, her debut, Little Eve, which won the 2019 Shirley Jackson Award, and we'll have more on our show later, and now The Last House on Needless Street. So, hello, Catriona. Thanks for joining us. Um, Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So, I was thinking about this, you know, looking at the books you've written. um, In many ways, you are the perfect guest for these pandemic times, (laughs) because actually all of your books focus in some way on people being isolated within their homes or a particular building um you know you've got the vicarage in Dartmoor remote Mm. Scottish island and now we have Needless Street which is someone locked inside um a house in the suburban US had you seen that link yes I mean I think I think that I think that being constrained and having focus on on uh, containment and buildings is quite a gothic instinct, really. Also, I suppose it's a matter of all fiction f- focuses on on uh, barriers and containment in some form or another, and gothic just makes it literal, makes it physical, makes it into walls and windows and doors and locks. Um, I also think that in whatever genre you one cares to put those books into, um, and they've been called pretty much everything under the sun including some very rude words um the actual point of anything uncanny or thrillery is a sense of narrative and physical escape so even though one doesn't intend to do this i think these ideas just come together very uh, naturally and organically in 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 narratives of this kind i also just like i think a sense of place is always very important in my work as well, whether it is... Because I think there's a strong... As you say, there's a lot of containment, which I'm, I'm sure everybody, as you say, is feeling very sick of currently. But there's a sense of containment, and there's also a huge sense of isolation and of bleakness and of wild landscapes. And the contrast between the two is, I think... Um, with the isolation and that, that huge... like that, that big sense of space and land and big sky country kind of adding to the containment 
adding to the sense of being trapped while also subverting it, I, I think. But yeah, no, I, I think it's a deeply ingrained horror or gothic habit, this this focus and slightly obsessive fixation on, on buildings and imprisonment. Um, which, you know, in normal circumstances on this podcast would lead us on to the perfect opportunity to talk more about The Last House on Needless Street, which <laughs> is a fantastically inventive and at points very chilling book. But, and if I were a cheesier kind of host, I would have one of those big warning sirens that goes, we have a difficulty here in that you've written something that is impossible to talk about without ruining it (laughs) is the ultimate in you really don't want spoilers for it. So I wondered first if you could give, say, people carefully an idea of what the book's about and stop at the key point. Sure. So The Last House on Leader Street is about um, Ted, who's a very strange man who lives in a uh, boarded up house uh, on Needler Street, in the last house before um, the huge uh, roiling Pacific Northwest forest, because it's um, set in Washington State. So you've got, again, this sort of house versus wilderness juxtaposition. Um, And he lives there with his daughter, Lauren, and his very, very disapproving cat, Olivia. Uh, and children have been going missing from a nearby lake for um, for many years. Unsolved, mysterious disappearances. No one has no one has um, been able to uh, to get to the bottom of. And um, into the empty house next door, um, the second house, last house on Needle Street, I suppose. Uh, there moves a woman called Dee, who is convinced that uh, Ted has something to do with the mysterious disappearance of her own sister at that lake years ago. And then, when finally Ted's own daughter goes missing herself, sort of uh, suspicion turns to terror and uh, events unfold in a dreadful, uh, inevitable way. That's a pretty good point to stop, I think. (laughs) Is that vague enough at the end? There are so many interesting things, not in the least that part of it is narrated from the point of view of Olivia, the cat, as well. Um, Yeah. But what I wanted to talk to you about particularly is there is this enormous twist that I didn't really see coming at all, uh, which is great because I'm normally a terrible cynic about twists in books, I have to say. So you've won me over. Um, (laughs) But people get very angry about endings being spoiled for them these days. And I don't know if that's because we have a greater platform to talk about all forms of culture and therefore more opportunities to, you know, find out the ending before we want to, or if we've just become more more sensitive to it. Um, there's definitely a culture of people shouting, no spoilers on things. And I wondered, you know, does it automatically ruin something for you if you know the ending? Gosh, I've got lots of thoughts on this. I think, well, okay, for, I mean, firstly, I think no two people ever read the same book, you know. Um, someone said that, I can't remember who, but they were very very wise, and I think that's true. So, in a way, you can't really preempt someone's reading experience, in a way. Having said that, I think part of the satisfaction and the, uh, the great pleasure and the sense of fulfilment you get from something that is structured along um, the lines of a mystery or or a, or uh or a, maybe a, maybe a, a murder or a thriller is this sense of being able to to 
follow a journey to its conclusion while following the breadcrumbs the author leaves. And I don't know if you can do that in the same way and be let and and uh, walk the path unknowing, as it were, if you know where it ends. I I always think that there's something in particularly murder mysteries and in ghost stories, actually, as well, which are very focused on creating order out of chaos. You know, there's a sort of sense there's a sense of rational uh, rational sequence of events or a, a rational ethos that underlies them that we lack in real life. Like in a murder mystery, although you don't, they don't always have happy endings. And perhaps the murder is not never caught. There's a reason why not. There's there is there is reasoning behind it, and the whole point of it is that it has a satisfy some kind of satisfying logical progression which actually life lacks. Um, and the ghost story, I, I think, has a, a similar, although. In a, in a, coming from a different angle, aspect to it, which is that I, I actually think it's a very positive form. It's very, it's very, um, it's, it's very light, almost very kind of affirming of some kind of order in the universe because the ghost is created out of some event that is so dreadful that the entire fabric of being revolts enough to create this anomaly, the ghost, which wants something. And again, whether that, that want is, is met or not, is, it, it's not really the point, is, is that there, there, is, there is reason behind things. It, it makes sense in a way that life, it's, uh, life with its arbitrary ways doesn't. Um, and I think that that is part of the satisfaction of of that ending. And there is also the, that traditional catharsis that you experience as a reader at the height of emotion. It's very kind of, you know, going back to the sublime and the gothic. There's that, that's, that's the sort of the thrill that you feel at um, having your expectations turned on your head, but in, 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 a, in a contained way, by, by, in a controlled way by the, by the author. I think I totally understand it. I, I understand this resistance to it. Having said that, I am dreadful. I, of, I quite often, I hate endings because it, when, I, when I finish something, it means it's, it means I've, it's done and I can't, I'm not doing it. I can't read it anymore because I'm finished. I quite often, if I love something, um, this is something I've only just realised about myself. Gosh. Um, we'll we'll think of it as a psychotherapy session. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, <laughs> fantastic. Very reasonable rates as well. Um, Aim to please. <laughs> I think that I, 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 find, I find myself, if I really love something, I quite often don't watch the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Or if I uh, love a book, I will quite, I will, I will, I will eke it out for as long as possible. I read very, 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 very fast, and um, I think, I think that's just ha- habit. And I think when ple- it's pleasure that makes me slow down, and it's pleasure that makes makes me sort of stop sometimes midway. And because if I'm if I've stopped and I haven't quite reached the ending, that I still have it. <laughs> I'm still I'm still actively nominally reading it. It's, it's a sort of little totemic kind of magic talisman that you that I give myself. Really, I've wandered from your point, but um, I think I like with almost all questions to do with books, isn't it? That the answer is sometimes, maybe, in a way, uh, kind of. <laughs> I, I I think I can understand. I I I prefer not to not to be pre pretty warned of, of endings um myself but and, and we do we do as you say have many many more ways of, of being of having them communicated to us um involuntarily or involuntarily on you know so yeah i, I get that so um i've realized i do exactly what you do i too read quite quickly and i too save things towards the end i have a yeah. number of like the last 10 pages of books stacked beside my bed here and uh, so you have common company there. And that's it. And do you read also, do you read several things at once in order to, 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 to kind of like, to, 
like uh, de- delay or give yourself a little bit of a little bit of more time in the process? Yes, I absolutely do that. I usually have about sort of three to five things on the go in different kind of genres. <laughs> so interesting that, isn't it? Yep. Uh, I wonder if there's anyone listening who also feels the same. If you do, please let us know via our Twitter <laughs> account, because actually I think this conversation could run and run as an extra <laughs> to the podcast. So do get in touch with us on at Read Like a Pod. Um, when we spoke yesterday, you mentioned as like one of the, the sort of great twists that you first came across was the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Oh, um, yes. Which mm. came out quite a while ago now, almost 100 yeah. years do you think there should be a statute of limitations on spoilers? Like, you can't uh, say this. So you're like, look, guys, if you don't know the end of Great Expectations by now, there's nothing I can do for you. Or do you no, think you should try I and think, be polite no. to people? I think, I think people read different things at different times, at different rates. And, you know, the, a, great, a great twist remains a great twist. Um, I was thinking after our talk, actually, about the life of Pi, which I think is probably one of the, more, more, one of the great twists of modern times. Um, partly because of its ambivalence. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, actually, but it's, it truly re- reconstructs the book in retrospect, um, but then uh, adds a layer of ambiguity to make you wonder whether it actually has indeed done that. So you have two parallel possible narratives running alongside each other, in, in you know, cut, streaming backwards from that event at the end where where the where the twist unfolds. I think that's just so masterful. I'd have been I would have been upset if someone had had spoiled that for me, because. There's a kind of there's there's a kind of covenant that you make with the reader between the reader and the, and and the writer, I think, whereby and this is very much involved in genre where you set up the rules of your world and the reader knows what to expect. You know that if you're in a romantic, if you open with bright and jaunty music, for instance, in film terms, uh, and you know you have nice nice dancing titles and you know perhaps an aerial shot of new york that you're in a romantic comedy and you the rules of the romantic comedy will apply which is that nothing too terrible is going to happen to people and there will be some there will be sadness but also hopefully optimism at the end and that is that that those are the rules that have been set up and the walls of the world have been created and i think that a lot of i'm thinking also sarah pinborough's like behind her eyes um where Again, not going to spoil it, but there is, you know, part of part of the so-called twist or part of the um, part of that great cathartic moment of 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 unveiling the architecture of the novel, if you will, um, is uh, involved in breaking those rules and tearing down those walls. So you have to do it advisedly. I think you have to really earn it in order to to take the reader uh, out of out of the world you have you have told them they're in and and show them that they have been in an, another one all along and I think if that is the if that is the architecture of the book I would have been I would have been sad if someone had 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 told me the end the ending of Life of Pi because I think it is masterful and it is to do with your preconceptions or or the care the careful building world building it, you know sinking into you and you and you really believing it. So you've mentioned a couple of things here, which lead me on quite nicely, because mm. you, you talked about the architecture of the novel yeah. and about world building. Um, I wanted to know from you, as a writer, not as a reader, how do you go about creating that kind of architecture? What sort of scaffolding do you need to put in place? What are the foundations? How long can I kill this metaphor? <laughs> um, I think... I think Oh, well, I mean, I think I think in a way what you do, what I do a lot of the time is just re- you reverse engineer it. So uh, you start out with where you want to go 
and then you work back from there. And I think what one wants to do in any um, fiction is to suggest an idea or proposition or, or a truth and then subvert it. I think that's, the, that's sort of the way all fiction works or question it or interrogate it, whether it's a truth about, you know, whether it's a truth about this, you know, this narrative being about this or whether about, you know, the, 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 the fickleness of the human heart, you know, what you're, everything you're doing is asking questions about, about, uh, about uh, you know, something solid that you're kind of circling around narratively. So I think I sort of always visualise it as two reversed poles and you have to travel from one to the other one you know from and and somehow make the journey plausible and not jump <laughs> so you have to gradually you have to gradually 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 uh, lean lead lead your reader from one you know from from black to white or white to black if you will um and i think that it's imperative to have uh, lots of very satisfying clues but also very satisfying red herrings um, I think there's a huge pleasure in... It's not deception, is it? It's a kind of collaborative exercise you do with the reader. You, you, you both decide that you're going on it together. You, you, you consent to being, to being in this world together, you and the reader. So I, I picture it very visually, actually, and almost diagrammatically. Um, and I think that... I think, yes, I think pleasure is, important, is an important thing. I, sh- I think there should be... There should be a great deal of enjoyment and satisfaction in the catharsis. I think that you know spacing out your uh, uh, your your little your breadcrumbs and your revelations is important so that you so that you build slowly and slowly to that to a, to a big great reveal. Um, it's difficult to talk about in the abstract, isn't it? Because you do it, one does it. Most of so much of writing is just it's it's like fumbling around in a dark room looking for the light switch, which you never find, by the way. Um, it's just. <laughs> it's um so it's interesting to try and think of it in those in explicit terms i think that's the best description i can think of for it i'll probably think completely differently tomorrow you know i think that's a really good point to uh to stop trying to give away the ending of your book and, uh, <laughs> oh because god it's hard but i will say to everyone listening it really is worth getting there um and will make you think of the entirety of the rest of the book differently so uh however we're going to get out of the danger zone now and <laughs> uh talk about well firstly i'd like you to share your favorite independent bookshop now you've picked two i did i picked two because i'm i'm actually i'm 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 you i'm uh from the uk and i'm American as well, so I thought I'd pick one of each to fit to, to reflect my my divided nature. Um, no, it's uh, so my first one is um, Queens Park Books in London in Queens Park, um, which has just been a real uh, touchstone for me. I've lived um, I've lived on and off in London for for what fifteen years now, and in several places, always as always as a kind of satellite somehow around this bookshop. Um, and it's always been been within walking distance of wherever I've lived, which is extraordinary, really, and not not planned. I don't move houses according to where my bookshop is, although that's not a bad reason to move. Um, uh, and I th- I just think they are exactly what a good bookshop should be in that you can get just get lost in there um and when every direction when wherever you look all you see is books and they're just fantastic at finding everything you need and i yeah so i'd support i I find they're they're a fantastic local bookshop and um what is it specifically about it you love like when you walk in or the staff or i love 
I think I think it has it has the, it has an air of um, being absolutely dedicated to, to books, which sounds strange. But actually, there's there's a lot of there are a lot of other bookshops where you just, there's a, there are other aspects to it. But um, it's just packed. It, as I said, visually, all you can see is is like as higher than your head as rows and rows of books. And also, the staff are really helpful. They've I think they've I think that you can the love of of reading just comes off them. Um, and you can you can I think you can you can ask for anything I think in the and also in the also in the pandemic as well I think I admire these I admire bookshops for keeping going at all I just don't know how they're doing it I think it's absolutely amazing um, and my second one is Skylight Books in LA which is um, in Los Feliz in uh, sort of like one of the very few areas in LA where you can actually have a little wander and go to a cafe and like pedestrianise because LA is all driving, all cars. People think you're crazy if you get out and walk. Um, and when you walk into Skylight, there is this huge sense of space. It's very, very high. It's high ceiling building with a little gap, with a little gallery at the back. Um, and uh, it's just got this airy sense of being almost like... I, it, it feels a bit like a church when you go in, and well, it would be my, more more my kind of church than a regular kind of church, really. It's got a sense of being very calm, very peaceful. Obviously, they can get anything for you. They are very good on. They've got they've got very good um, genre sections, and um, I just I just always think of it being filled with light, uh, light in this beautiful height, kind of white high ceiling space white and white and wood it's got this very strong visual impression on me and you can go and you can find like big names but also like short story collections by really obscure writers and it's and uh, i did i actually had uh, the launch for uh, my american launch for raw blood in that skylight books and they were so nice to me <laughs> i was supposed to do it with um Mike Mike Mignola, who I don't know if you know, but he draws the Hellboy comics. I'm, so, I'm such a big fan of his, and um, he's very very kindly agreed to do a launch with me, who's like nobody because he liked my book and I thought it was just so kind of him. And then so obviously everyone who's coming to my launch isn't coming for me; they're coming to see Mike Mignola talk about Hellboy, which is absolutely as it should be. And then I think on the day, poor Mike Mignola had a, had a problem and he had to cancel. <laughs> And so all these, all the, I, I had to tell the bookshop about this and uh, they, they couldn't have been nicer. And they were like, don't worry, everyone's coming for you anyway. I was like, that's patently not true. But <laughs> they were so gracious and just like moved things around and like fixed it up so that I, you know, so rearranged the event so that I, it, was, it was more focused around the book. And, you know, it would, I just, I thought they were absolutely delightful. And again, book people, book people, you, you can smell them, not smell them, you can, you can recognise them. <laughs> <laughs> You can recognise them a mile off, and they and they they really are like, you know, it just it just shows. I think it's really really they've got lots of moral fibre. Onto the the moral fibre or lack of it, actually, of one of your first choices. Um, depending on your meaning of moral fibre, I think as we've been talking about the last house on Needle Street, we should kick off with talking about one of the books you mm. said you went to while you were writing it, which is Zombie <sighs> by Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. Yes. Um, this is, I think this is an extraordinary book. So it's about um, it's about a serial killer who's modelled on Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, I think it, the character's name is Quentin P. P is sort of redacted in in the book. You never really know his 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 last name, and he blazes through his town, um, killing and eating 
young men and looking for, as Jeffrey Dahmer did, um, ways to create elu- the, the elusive zombie, which would be entirely in his thrall, entirely within his control. Um, it's a very short book. It's absolutely horrifying, actually. And uh, one of the things I found uh, that I, uh, I one of that I took from it is this is a sort of way to contain the monstrous, it, to write about things that are impossible to to, to write about, um, and to to frame uh, horrific uh, horrific things in a, in a way that 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 respects the horrificness of them, but also doesn't overwhelm the text and indeed the reader and indeed me you know um because these are not these are these are things that nobody there are anomalies for a reason because we we, and there is a reason people don't write fiction so effectively there are notable exceptions of course but there uh, fiction doesn't lend itself naturally to such um deep her awfulness so uh, this was this, and her way of her way of framing it was very interesting so actually there's there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpick here about um uh the the structure of the book which is uh like needless street um although um needless street is a, uh, structured partially in a set of uh record tape cassette record self-recorded kind of diary entries um, and as as uh, zombie is also a set of a set of diary entries with lots of lots of typographic kind of oddities like there is. Um, I was going to mention that because yes, it exactly. shares quite a lot in common with your book in that sense. The yes, use of capitals, the use of particular abbreviations, dats, doshes, ita- dats, dats and doshes, dots and dashes, and italics. Yes. So this is this is a sort. Of, okay, so this is for me. I find I find this. I find this kind of fascinating. So what this is, 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 is also a, a gothic impulse. This is gothic habit of fragmentation, uh, which presents itself in, in uh, small, smaller or uh, attenuated or cut off uh, fragments of uh, first, first person or first hand primary source narrative. So it's like bits of diary. Uh, glimpses into people's consciousness but but often quite cut off so you build a gothic narrative quite often so dracula works like this the jonathan harker's diary and then moving on to the, to the others and uh, wuthering heights also works like this it's constructed out of various narratives melmoth the wanderer the the ur gothic narrative which sort of n- nested 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 narratives within narrative this is a, this is a gothic impulse and there's a so, there it's a kind of reframing of um of a Catholic impulse, uh, of a Catholic documentation of canonization, so you've got you've got this air of testimony about the about the Gothic. It's presenting itself as first hand narrative in the same way that found footage uh, today has it, it imitates something presenting itself as real, saying this uh, this is you know this 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 shakes this the camera ha- the camera is shaking and therefore someone is holding it and therefore this really happened it's all it's all it's all lending itself to the idea that this is not just fiction but a piece of found factual document um which is almost exactly how uh you know you would provide uh, documentation on sainthood and um and canonization you have to provide witnessing testimony and and fact and facts and and backup documents and you know and uh, sworn affidavits the gothic is a sort of <laughs> seems to be a sort of profane version of that so all of these things like the redaction like like a gov- almost a government style document redaction in zombie is all a 
referencing and i think i think subconscious consciously or subconsciously there is an element of the reader's mind that that recognizes that a document that is censored is is a is a is a, a piece of fact and evidence why would you censor the fictional if it's something is made up well quite exactly so again it's it presents itself as it's an, it's a gesture towards verisimilitude it's showing this really happened um and that was something both and the diary format's fantastic because it is the 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 epitome of the unreliable narrator i mean we don't get more unreliable than the diary <laughs> um so it sort of percolated in me these 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 strategies for um for framing something which you know i i find i found quite difficult to write about i don't want to write about these things one may ask you your next question might be well why do you but i i i, I don't i don't relish writing about things which which uh, uh, are you know so steeped in in suffering and, and horror it's they are necessary to tell this story, but I needed to find a vehicle to carry it in a way that I could live with and the reader could live with as well. So you get the full impact of it without and not minimise it as well, which is also important. And this and Joyce Carol Oates, to me, has written this, has applied this gothic technique to this monstrous narrative in a perfect way. And I shamelessly stole it. I mean, <laughs> not, not stole it. I think I think they're quite I think there are differences and I, th- I think they are different. But I th- I I. It was very. It was. It was a, a huge help and influence and inspiration to me to to to, to um to read that book. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know, it's interesting, actually, because what you say about dealing with something that's real uh, and fictionalizing to do that, Joyce yeah. Carol Oates was actually working quite close to the date of the Jeffrey Dahmer story unravelling. Yeah. He was arrested in 1991. The book was out in 1995. So her writing yeah. period must have started pretty much just after when all of the stories started coming out. Do you think for you, I was going to ask why do you, I'm going to ask you something slightly more subtle. Mm -hmm. Do you think that for you writing about it is the way of dealing with some of the horror and the violence in the world? I think horror... I think hor horror is a recuperative act, really, in general, for me, anyway. I don't think you can have horror without compassion, because that's why you feel the horror. It's because of your compassion, because you empathise. Um, I think it is, I think it's definitely a way of exploring it. Um, uh, yes, of exploring it with that, it, it, and hopefully finding that fictional, as, we were, as I was saying earlier, that fictional sense of order... It doesn't, you know, find, finding the humanity in something that at first glance doesn't seem to have any humanity in it at all. Um, so, yes, I do think that. Um, I, again, I always come back to this idea of compassion and, and empathy because I, I'm afraid of everything, right? Like everything. And I think I and people I think there's there's a sort of expectation that hor people who write this sort of thing, who write, who, who look the horrible or the horrific in the eye are somehow tougher. Whereas actually we're not at all. I think we're ba we're more baby like, we're more like baby naked baby voles than anyone else, really. Um, we because you have to be afraid of something to make the reader afraid of it. If in order to bring the awful import of, of horror, you have to. You have to feel it yourself. I, I don't see how. I don't see why you'd be writing it otherwise. You know, unless unless you're sort of funny at titillating. Uh, why would you tell that story unless you wanted? Unless you felt bone deep how awful or or, or how frightening it was. Um, so yes, I think I think it's a way of. It's perhaps it's a sort of narrative or fictional way of reaching out and saying I'm frightened too, you know. Um, so we're going to go on to your second choice, which I'm so thrilled that you have chosen because yes. I recommend this book to people all the time. You recommend this book to people all the time. That's I the do. category you've chosen it for. And no, one ever, so no one ever takes it up. <laughs> well, no, I just do. want someone to talk about it with because no one else seems to have read it. And it is Kelly Link's short story collection, Get in Trouble. Yeah. I could tell you why I love it. Why do you love it? It's one of those things where it, the writing and the subject matter and the language and everything is so consummately wonderful that it's very hard. To, it's very hard to see the joins. So it's very hard to say, "Oh well, she's very good at this" because it's it's all good. But this, the, uh, she seems to be the fusion of everyday life with things that we consider uh, supernatural or uncanny. So fairy tales, superheroes. Um, uh, pocket worlds, spaceships, um, is is so perfectly done that it seems to reveal that these that, that it seems to reveal a sort of truth about both the the qualities of genre and the, and the nature of life itself. Really, that both it tells us what we need from genre, maybe in a way, but also it's just so magical. The, the first story in the collection, which is the Summer People, I think. Is so perfectly constructed, but you never see you never you're being led gently, as it were, down you know, away by the fairies in this completely plausible world in which fairies just live in. I think it's Kentucky, 
in the in the hollows of Kentucky, and um, I, I it's very hard to leave that world. Actually, it's very hard to leave a world leave a world where the rules feel the rules that she's constructed feel so instinctively right. Um, I love. And you just want to be you you want to be in the world, but you also marvel at at how cleverly she's made the interplay between our our let's face it rather grey existence and uh, and these these mythic ideas to which we revert to time and time and time again. Um, this is one and, of the things I loved actually was this sort of like very easy confluence of the fantastic yeah. and the mundane and there's one specific bit where there's a character who's a waitress and she's inherited like a kind of crap superpower that oh, she yes. can't she can't fly but she can Just, hover yeah, 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 and yeah. she uses it for her waitressing job specifically to avoid getting varicose veins and that's it that's what she uses her power for which i think is just and she explains it as just a sort of matter of fact as she's putting down yeah. diner food in front of people i love yeah. that and there's a sort of like, but you come away feeling that perhaps that is the world we live in somehow. I, I don't know how. It, it both, both the real world seems stranger, and the this mythic fairy tale or superhero world seems more accessible. Um, it's it's almost like you're I'm looking at it as a writer and going, oh, is she? So she's using it as a met, as a metaphor for life. No, it isn't a metaphor for life. No, it's not. It's, it's it's a sort of it's an extension of the mythology that includes our world. No, it isn't. It isn't that at all. It's so many strategies that seem to be being, being employed simultaneously. Because you, and you always think you pinned it down what she's doing exactly. Because I'm looking at at it sort of forensically as a writer and thinking, what is it here that you're actually doing? What's the what is what? It, how is that? How is the, well, How did these mechanics click into each other? And and each time you think you've got it, it it it, it shifts beneath you. Um, and I, I remember when I first read uh, her first collection, which is uh, was her first collection. It was Magic for the for Beginners, anyway, which was my first my my first experience of Kelly Link. And I suddenly felt, I suddenly felt that I'd been doing a poor impression of Kelly Link, even though I had no idea that she'd existed, which is a very Kelly Link thing to feel, you know. I think you're being hard on yourself there. But, um, <laughs> I just felt so. I felt so completely awed by 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 her consummate ability to. Um, I, I sort of felt. Oh, this is what this is what I've been trying to do. Uh, I've been trying. I felt like almost like I've been trying to. I've been trying to imitate her, even though I had no idea that she existed. And <laughs> um, I just thought that would because I've just come away from reading Kelly Link because I was having a look at it this morning, which is a mistake, right? Because you just can't you can't stop reading it. Um, Absolutely. And I suddenly thought that that's exactly how she'd write a, a story about Kelly Link. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that the hearty recommendation from both me and Catriona here is go and buy Kelly Link. Please. Um, but we're going to also talk about another short story connection now, uh, which is your choice for an upcoming title, which is Anna Ward's Yes, Yes, More, More. Anna Wood. Anna Wood. That's my terrible writing. Anna Wood. <laughs> so you can tell I haven't read this book, <laughs> which oh, no, is often we... the case with the upcoming ones. <laughs> Fair enough. It's um, so Anna. Uh, yes, Anna Wood's. Yes, yes, more, more. It's uh, it's a it's a, it's a sh another short story collection. Um, again, I felt. I felt, you know, when you, you know, that thing you have when you encounter really good writing, it's just this instant sense of recognition. I was like, oh, yes, I know how that feels, which is exactly, which is exactly that magic you're always striving for as a writer, which is reaching across the divide. And What's the book like, about? Can you explain oh, it for sorry, me? Yes. And, uh, yeah, sorry. For and sure. the others. Um, it's, um, it's about uh, young 
women usually it's basically it's about uh, all, most of the character most of the most of the time the main character is uh, some variation of a girl called Annie or Anna and her um on basically on nights out or journeys or uh in uh, in in bars <laughs> where extraordinary things happen to her very much emotionally it's very hard to describe because everything is so physically perfect you're so instantly vividly plunged into these tiny tiny thousand tiny decisions that go up to make up a second um as you go through life and women's the, the problems i think they're very specifically female narratives and well they've got female female-led characters but like it's it's it it vividly conjures all of the tiny exterior and interior difficulties you face every second. There is literally one story which is just a train journey and she has a conversation on a train. But <laughs> you feel so keenly how she feels about this man she strikes a conversation with and what it means, the danger. And there's, there's a lot about the pleasures of sensuality and also the dangers thereof and and temptation and quick decision making and forging your identity out of all of these experiences or indeed f f defying them so and it's bookended by um these two wonderful stories about hot summers and one in new orleans at the, which is at the end and one um at the beginning which is a hot summer in bolton was one of my favorite short stories i've ever read this first one it's it, it's about three school, two schoolgirls in bolton on a really hot summer's day on the last day after their exams who take acid and have a wander around town um and it's just so beautiful the things that happen to them are so simple but the great depth of feeling that you that it, that you get from watching them on the cusp of everything and being in you know, in their consciousnesses as, and worrying for them and hoping they're okay because they're just on the threshold of this very adult world um and they take you know and being young is i think inherently risky and you and you you, you gravitate towards risk and then you find you know and the the worry is at every point there's is is are they going to be okay? <laughs> and there's this wonderful point where they're st they're sort of frozen by a fence where a dog is barking at them, and they've convinced themselves that dogs know when you're high. Um, <laughs> and so they're just terrified because the dog knows they're high, and and then their gaze just travels along this very very high fence. They're like, it's okay, it can't get over because it's very high fence high fence high, and then the gaze travels down towards the end. And they see that the gate is open. And then they're just standing. The dog hasn't noticed yet that the gate is open. So they see the dog is still there in their faces, barking at them. And they just repeat to themselves in this terrified high mantra, fence high, gate open, fence high, gate open. And it's just, it's such a comical and beautiful and terrifying and awful moment. But it seems to inhabit all of those fears at once. It's very, it's about travel and love and food and drink and sex and it's just but it, it it frames it all in these tiny micro moments and and fills them with so much life and vividness that you just you feel like you you come away seeing life quite differently so we're going to talk now as well uh, i think that sounds fantastic um but when you were in quite a similar position to those characters a book you fell in love with as an adolescent yes. um which is watership down which Struggled to get published for so long, apparently. Oh, did it? Um, yeah, it eventually came out in 1972, but Richard Adams kind of took it to publisher after yeah. publisher, and no one wanted a story about a group of anthropomorphised 
yes. slightly psychic rabbits. Yeah. Um, and yet it has become both beloved and an object of trauma for several generations. Yeah. Why do you love it so much? I just, it. I think, I think it, it's one of those things that, that, somehow frames being human through through the means of, of being other so perfectly it makes me feel more human reading about rabbits for some reason you know it's one of those strange juxtapositions as you say the anthropof- anthropomorphized rabbits are um they're not rabbits it's not it's not a do- nature documentary on rabbit behavior they they behave not as humans do, which is, I think, is really key when you're writing things like as it's a it's a sort of extended par, like extended parable, isn't it, on like the on the virtues of community and bravery and kindness and community and it's just it's, it's also really, rather a classic quest as well, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, it's, it's a like, hero's journey. Exactly, yeah. yes, it's it's like Lord of the Rings, but maybe a bit better with rabbits and. It's um, it's got all of the, it's got all of this packed into into a, a world that is has that pleasurable strangeness to it. Like I think of also Lillian Paul's The Bees when I think about this as well. Because I was going to mention that yes. as soon as you said about the society and their ways of being, like that hive in the bees had the atmosphere of like this sort of it had this kind of girls' school atmosphere to it, it almost. Did. It did, it, it did, it did. But it also was just, it was non-human enough to make you feel... Very much. And there's that wonderful bookend of the, of the bees as well, where two um, humans are looking at the hive, discussing it, and discussing this old this like old wives' tale about the bees leave because they do this or that, and putting some sort of imposing some sort of human explanation on bee behaviour. And you go into the novel, and it's not that at all. The bees do not give a crap about what humans are doing or saying or ascribing meaning to their to, to their behaviour in any way. It's it, they're, they're just bees, and but yet somehow the alienness feeds back into our understanding of ourselves also the characterization of watership down i think is excellent i think it i think we've all known a bigwig haven't we mm. and we've all known a captain woundwort although yes, hopefully not not so. too closely um it's 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 a novel it's also it's a very it's a very british novel it's got that huge love of 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 a very particular place which you know all the wild places are in trouble now aren't they and there's a sort of elegiac quality about it reading it now because because of that you know um it conjures somehow using the most unexpected ways to, to show yourself back <laughs> to show back to yourself humanity and, and and compassion and understanding it really shouldn't it shouldn't be able to do that through talking about rabbits but it does and i suppose i i, mean, I didn't know that it had such trouble getting published i think well, i suppose no one's no one's no one's done watership down until they do watership down you know it didn't there, there wasn't a precedent for it really it really is kind of like a true original and i've heard it compared to the odyssey and, yeah, and all yeah. sorts of things it's but it's it's a wonderful book, and I think in Hazel as well, uh, talking of one of the more positive rabbits, you mentioned yes. two of the awful ones to know. Oh, I did, yes. Hazel is, despite being a rabbit, a classic, classic hero. Uh, yeah. You know, coming up from the ranks, showing his qualities of bravery and clear thinking. Um, Hazel's a wonderful creation. Prioritising that you're prioritising the, the community above his own, you know, needs, and yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a sort of it's a, there's a little political manifesto in there as well, isn't there? I suppose there is. Uh, the world needs more Hazels, I think. Oh, they do, and Fivers. And fivers, yeah. Uh, if we could all have a bit of psychic guidance at the moment, I don't think that would go amiss. Where should oh. we go, Fiver? Um, <laughs> yeah. Talking about something uh, 
This is a, we said earlier on, I don't know why I chose to curl call her our Shirl when I was introducing her. I've turned Shirley Jackson, you know, oh, mother of that. modern Gothic into like someone who's leaning on the fence with a cup of tea. Um, but anyway, our Shirl, um, I've, we've got two Shirley Jackson novels that you've chosen for the book that you always go back to. Books yes. that you always go back to. The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Mm. You spoke to me about it yesterday. Um, you spoke so eloquently about it. What is it that makes you love Shirley? I think she's well. She 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 is she is the master the master or mistress. I don't know. Let's not gender it. She is the she is the absolute consummate perfect evoker of that terror you feel in the night there's no cognate for that fear you feel in the dark really is there there's no other fear like it there's no because there's no explanation for it there's no there's nothing you can do about it um it you can't like it's not like being afraid of um you know human agency or or debt or or anything like that it's like being it's it's completely grabs your amygdala and doesn't let go and she communicates that perfectly i think also but the main thing about shirley jackson i think is just like there's and it's encapsulated in that in um in her in that wonderful that wonderful iconic opening paragraph of hill house which is that no you know is it no 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 live organism can long exist under conditions of absolute reality is that that in a way her her affinity for the other that terror that terror and that horror leads us to that question of you know what is what is the more what is the consummation most to be most devoutly wished is it is is it is it to live a normal life is it or is that in in its own right more horrible in some ways in and is that the true thing to be feared she's that there's this constant interplay between the dark and the light where um you're never quite sure whose side she's on actually um and that's, that's kind of the thing that makes her fascinating yeah though, isn't it it's like she has almost an empathy for the darker creations in her yeah. books um, yeah she does and she she you 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 re- you you relish alongside her the strangeness of 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 uh, you know the the more eccentric or perhaps undesirable aspects of human behaviour like Mericat is one of I think one of um, li- the great literary protagonists. I think Mericat as well. Uh, she and her sister also are kind of the extreme end, which is something which I think is very common throughout a lot of Shirley Jackson's work of this kind of domestic ickiness like a sort of domestic horror the things around them the jams and the spoons and the buried jewelry are all these kind of totems of femininity that have been warped and made disturbing and i think she's really good at that kind of taking the everyday and moving it into something else yeah i mean no one yeah no one no one has ever described the the menace of everyday objects with such effectiveness um i also uh, yeah i mean there's such beauty in in the seduction by it particularly about hill house i'm thinking about and also that at the end of um the end of we have always lived in the castle where uh they they the sisters wall sort of almost entomb themselves and but there's a sort of joy in it you know we no longer need to bother with other people there's yeah, a there's of, a real sense of release, isn't there? Yeah, it's it's a very like Emily Dickinson kind of like uh, like quiet uh, quiet triumph at having defeated, having evaded the, these the impositions of the world. Um, 
and there's yeah, I always think about that journey to Hill House as well, where Eleanor encounters all of these iterations of of herself. So she encounters the old lady with her shopping, who can't afford to eat and has taken left leftovers home to eat, and and um, Eleanor. It's sort of it's sort of the foreshadowing of what Eleanor could have been if she if she weren't as she is consumed by Hill House, and then there's also. Uh, that wonderful lunch in the over the mill stream where she sees the little girl and the cup of stars and that's the sort of perhaps the the in the the as if preserved in in some in spirit the sort of younger version of herself before all of the cares of the world took her this this vitality and this life from her and there's yeah, and then there's, there's Hill House itself, which is kind of it. And Eleanor becomes it, and she beco- and it becomes her. And there's that jo- that joy in uh, in in that last moment w- with the accompany with that horrible accompanying line of "Why doesn't anybody stop me?" When she's driving her car, this is at the end now, where she's driving her car into a tree, and th- that that is a horrible thing because it's sort of throws into relief her whole life really no one no no one helped her she's been she's been forced and and forced bounced around by other people's needs or all of her or throughout all of her life and this is just sort of the last epitome you know the apotheosis of that of that action also hill house contains um all of these such clever beautiful little touches like um uh, dr montague um who uh sort of orchestrates and engineers he'll he'll the all of the not sort of does orchestrate and engineer all of the um all of the action by assembling everyone at hill house it's sort of like he's a sort of he's a sort of avatar of mr james isn't he he's a kind mm. of organizing kind of mm. uh accredited uh knowledgeable authority on ghosts and horror <laughs> implanted into the narrative um and there are so many similar lovely little similarities between that scene with the hand holding and um a whistle and I'll, and I'll come to you my lad which both of which feature twin beds and there's always and both of which feature a room in which there's more than one person than there should be uh in the bed and uh, lots of little plays on words and things so she's 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 so it's such a combination of uh, emotional and authentic kind of f- uh, like feeling and and real uh, like uh, conveys real a real sense of all of all of her characters and Eleanor's desperation but also just technically is a marvel really which a, a great point to stop is talking about another technically brilliantly constructed book which is yours cats uh, so catriona wards the last house on needless street is published on the 18th of march in hardback ebook and audiobook by viper books and serpent's tale thank you so much cat it's been great to have you with us and i've really enjoyed talking to you oh thank you so much for having me and thank you for letting me go on and on and on <laughs> about all these books that is exactly the point of what we're doing <laughs> Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash read like a writer. And we'd love to hear what you think too, so you can tweet us at readlikeapod. like a pod.